Well, uh, many of you might have seen that the, uh, the inquiry has begun uh, to the disaster, the tragic events of Grenfell Tower this week. Sir Martin Moore-Bick has opened up uh, the public inquiry. It's interesting, isn't it, though? Immediately, what we have seen as he's begun his inquiry is there is a, a very high level of scepticism. His, his authority is being questioned from the word go. You can understand that, can't you, to a degree? You can sympathise and have, you know, kind of and empathise with those who are sceptical because they're hurt, they're angry. But we must acknowledge that that is not unusual today. Authority is being challenged more and more and more as we look around our society. There are growing levels of scepticism throughout. People don't believe others in authority. They don't trust others in authority. And so they push against people with authority all the time. I wonder, how do you respond? This is a bit of a kind of a, a check for you. How do you respond to people in authority over you? You know, when your boss asks you to, to do some work and you know, you know that they're going to take all the credit for the work that you have done. And if you do it wrong, they'll, you'll take all the blame. Of course you will. How are you going to respond to that kind of authority? How do you respond to the traffic warden? You know, when you, your tyre is just a millimetre over the line, and yes, according to the law, you should have that ticket and pay the fine. How do you respond to the traffic warden as they just so graciously place it on your windscreen? You turn on the news, and uh, you see authority of the, the authority of the police being challenged all the time. If you don't believe me, ask a policeman. The authority of parents, of teachers, of doctors, of politicians. Their words and their actions are once viewed with the, the utmost of respect throughout society. Now, well, those days are gone. And that is good in some ways, isn't it? Because authority and power can very easily corrupt. People need to be accountable to one another. But often we see today authority challenged. Authority undermined. It's becoming quite a norm, isn't it? Now, few of us naturally kind of respond to authority really well, do we? Uh, that power over us. Especially if we're unclear about the extent of the person and uh, the, the power and authority that they have. We were returning from France. Uh, it was uh, quite a few years ago now. And then we were in a car, you know, you get to the nervous point where you get your passports out and they sort of look you down and they wind your windows down, can we check you're all there and, and all this kind of thing. And there they were, the, the, the border agents, and they'd stopped someone in their car and they'd ripped out seats. And they were proceeding to, with a knife, slice open the leather seats of this car. And you could see the gentleman whose car was just being absolutely torn apart, getting more and more outraged by what was happening. And, and you could see him at the moment just sort of slightly sort of snap. He started, went for one of these guys and suddenly he got it. He, he was up to that point unsure about the apparent authority of border control agents. But suddenly with a... A gun pointing straight towards his head, he clocked it. He understood that they could do exactly what they wanted. They were doing nothing more and nothing less than the power and the authority that they had. They were legit legitimately doing their job. He was just unclear up to that point about the authority and the power that they did have. Look, I wonder whether we're clear 
I wonder whether we're clear on the authority and the power of Jesus. How do we respond to Jesus' authority? Uh, See, our, our response probably will be determined by how Jesus uses his authority and power. And that is why we're going to be here in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 over the next uh, number of weeks. Because we need to be clear on Jesus and his authority and his power in this world and therefore over our lives. And what implications does that have for us today, you and me? More of that in a moment as we dig into uh, Matthew chapter 8. But let me, if you can, take a a one step backward and let's look at Matthew's gospel, you know, in in the big picture for a moment. Because we're going to spend a few weeks here in in Matthew's gospel. And like all of the gospel accounts, Matthew's gospel is an eyewitness account of of an apostle viewing Jesus and his life. Now, all the gospels are carefully constructed for specific audiences. Now this gospel, Matthew's gospel, is specifically written mainly for the Jewish reader. It's meticulously edited to demonstrate that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus is shown again and again and again as the fulfilment of what the Old Testament has promised. Even the structure of this gospel is aimed to persuade the Jewish reader, particularly, that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And the gospel follows this kind of alternating pattern between some teaching of Jesus, what you might call a discourse sometimes, and some stories, some narrative about Jesus. Now, all you kids, you know about that because you do about grammar. The adults haven't a clue what we're talking about now, but you get it, okay? So we get a discourse... And then we get some narrative. And each section seeks to answer a prominent question in the hearts and minds of a Jewish inquirer. So, if you were to look back, we looked at this just a year or so ago, didn't we? We looked at Matthew chapter 5 to 7, famously called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, There, the reader is introduced to Jesus' teaching as he's shown them how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, if you just flip back to Matthew 7, verse 28, you'll see how that section ends. Look what he says. Matthew finishes that section showing that Jesus teaches with what? Authority. Verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, because he had taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Not as their teachers. Do you see the link? Jesus has amazed all the crowds with his teaching, with such authority. Now we get to chapters 8 and 9. What follows? He demonstrates that authority. He works it out through this kind of narrative of his story of his life. Through some amazing healings and miracles. So you get the authority of his teaching. Matthew 5 to 7. Followed by the authority of his deeds, his actions, his miracles in chapters 8 and 9. So let's dive into those two chapters. Uh, Let's begin there. Now, in these two chapters, bigger picture for just these two chapters, Matthew puts together here three groups of miracles and healings. And they're interspersed, like there's dotted between them, are small little accounts of people responding to Jesus. So what happens in these two chapters, what we're going to see again and again and again is this. Two main themes. 
You get the authority of Jesus being displayed as he does his miracles. And you get people responding to him, following him. Now, the authority of Jesus is mentioned at least five times, but more prominent, in fact, scholars show that actually in these two chapters alone, the word follow has uh, got the greatest concentration of that word follow in any of uh, the rest of the New Testament. Jesus demonstrates his authority. People respond and follow him. And the question will be, I'm sure, week on week, what about you? Will you follow him? Will you see his authority in this world? Will you respond and will you follow? If he has no authority, if that's what you conclude as you, get, as you go through these chapters of, of Matthew's Gospel, if Jesus has no authority in this world, well, you'd be a fool to follow him, wouldn't you? And likewise, if he has all authority, if you read these two chapters and you go, yes, it is clear that he has all authority throughout the whole of this world, surely you'd be a fool not to follow him. Let's look firstly then, first point, major point on your sheets there, the authority of Jesus. Now our reading is just three of many healing miracles that Jesus performed. You see that in verse 16, if you look forward, you see many were brought to Jesus. He drove out demons and he healed. How? The extraordinary thing again in verse 16. How did Jesus heal people? With a word. Just a word. Here we begin to see uh, it's key to understanding the authority of Jesus. He can speak. And he can heal with just a word. Authority, I think, can be seen in two main ways. By word... That is by something we say. So, for example, yeah, Ali's been leading the service today, and uh, Ali can speak with, the author- with authority on the subject of art. Ali is an artist, and he lectures in art. Uh, and uh, so we would be wise to listen to his authoritative word on the subject of art. Yeah, Matt, for example. No, let's, no, I mean, <laughs> Matt, you know, loves cricket. He reads lots about, if you ask a question about Matt, sorry, to Matt about cricket, be prepared. You're going to be there a long time. He knows every statistic for the Australian cricket team going back about 30 or 40 years. He's really not that dull, but yeah, get to know him. He's a lovely guy. Yeah, we'd be wise to listen to his authority regarding cricket. See, in any given context, someone can be an authority on a subject to which they have greater knowledge than those others present. But it's worked out in our actions too. Authority, therefore, can be seen and demonstrated through both our words and our deeds. But the second way, the second main way that we see authority demonstrated is through a position. It's uh, perhaps an office held. So a judge, of course, sits in a position of authority, don't they? They determine justice. And so by virtue of their position, they have authority. Now, let's apply that and think about Jesus. Jesus displays his authority through his words, through his teaching. But as we see today, that authority is then shown through his deeds. They are the proof, if you like, of the authority of his words. But together, those two things together make the obvious point. 
that Jesus has the authority, the only one person, that only one position of authority can have. Namely, Jesus' words and deeds show that he has the authority of God himself, that he is God himself. Let's look at how he demonstrates that. Let's dive our heads into the text. Look at verse 1 to 3. You see that with the healing of the leper there. Look at verse 2. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Now, I think we, uh, the magnitude of what's going on uh, and what Jesus does here is kind of lost in our ignorance regarding leprosy. Uh, you know, leprosy was a serious, serious illness in the ancient world. Uh, lepers were sometimes described as the walking dead uh, because they're, it's pretty gross, but the stench of their decomposing skin and its flaky white appearance uh, was such that eventually that their, their skin would degrade so much and fall off and leaving painful and visibly horrible scars. For example, when Miriam had leprosy in, in the Old Testament, Moses prayed that she would not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away. Lepers were understood to be... Yeah, not you, Matt. You're all right. I kind of got it right. We've got a Miriam here, but it's not that one, Okay. Lepers were understood to be as good as dead. As a result, they were seen as, many saw them as the living embodiment of God's judgment. Because, of course, physical death is a consequence of spiritual death. As we turn our backs on God, we cut ourselves from God, who's the author of life. We are, if you like, the living dead. Physical death is, of course, God's judgment. And therefore, lepers, the living dead, were described as they were ceremonially unclean, excluded from the people of God. They even, this is, I mean, shocking to today's times, but they even had to wear a bell because they were seen so unclean to warn others that they were coming. The sad fact is, though, if you were downwind from them, you could usually smell them coming. They were excluded and they were outcasts. And if you touched a leper, then you would be considered ceremonially unclean. And both Jesus and the leper would have known that very, very well. Leprosy was even used as an illustration in the prophet Haggai. If you look back there later, you could do that. Haggai showed that if a clean person touched the unclean leper, what would happen? Well, both would then be ceremonially unclean. Now, this is the extraordinary thing about this story. When Jesus touches the unclean person, immediately the leprosy, the, the leper is cleansed. Jesus, instead of becoming you know, tainted uh, and ceremonially unclean by touching the leper, uniquely, he remains clean. And so Jesus sends him off to the priest to verify the cleansing had taken place so that the leper could then rejoin the community of people and no longer wear the bell and no longer feel in shame. Jesus has the authority in his words, and this is demonstrated in this cleansing. It is the reversal, if you like, of the things, the way things are. 
I don't know if you remember painting at school. I'm going to show my ignorance to Ali now. And as an artist, I'm feeling quite intimidated now. But I remember painting at school. You remember you got your palette out and you got various paints. The one paint that you used to protect with your life, no one could go near it, was your white paint. Because what happens when you've got white paint and someone puts a little tiny bit of any other colour in it, it's useless. It's no longer white. It's a silly illustration to point out. When Jesus comes along, he makes it white. He totally reverses the natural order. He brings cleansing. He heals this leper with his authoritative word. The person uh, with leprosy here has uh, the appearance of death, was under the sentence of death, had the stench of death. But Jesus has the authority to reverse the situation. And note that Jesus keeps the Old Testament law here by sending the leper in verse 4 to make offerings at the temple. But his authority is clear. He can reverse the worst judgment of the law, bringing total restoration in a word. Now, let's move on to the second uh, healing miracle. Uh, it is a complete contrast, as Ali pointed out earlier, because the second request is made by the most esteemed member of that society, a Roman centurion. Let's look at him, shall we? Look at verse 6. We see the situation here. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And verse 7, Jesus said to him, shall I, shall I come and heal him? And in verse 8, the, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Look how the centurion understands the authority of Jesus. He certainly trusts the authority of Jesus, doesn't he? In verse 8, he says, yeah, just say a word. I, I know it might be miles away, but just say the word, be fine. But see in verse 9 how he understands the authority of Jesus. It's extraordinary. Look at verse 9. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. He's in a pecking order. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion, is not, he knows his place. He shows that he himself has authority, great authority, over many people. But he's also under authority because he's under the Roman uh, leader, the, the leader of the Roman Empire. He's under Caesar. He would report directly to Caesar. See, the point is this. When the centurion gives an order to one of his soldiers, he's saying it's in a line of authority. It is, is, it is as if Caesar is saying, come, go. I'm under that authority and I speak for Caesar. And this centurion sees a parallel between his authority and that, the authority he sees in Jesus. The centurion knows that Jesus has the authority of God himself. The crowds recognise this in Jesus' teaching at the end of verse, uh, chapter 7. And the centurion is trusting it here. This is real. This is true power. Yeah, infinite authority. Jesus is no fake at all. He's God in human flesh and the centurion has clocked it. Only an all-powerful creator God can say to a disease, get out. 
or verse 13. Look, go it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Exactly at the moment. What do we learn about the authority of Jesus here? Well, again, as Jesus speaks, God speaks. He can reverse the natural order of things and make what is unclean clean with just a word. How? Because Jesus has the authority of God himself. He can bring restoration. Jesus has come to heal the sick. But what does that tell us about him? Well, Matthew wants his readers to know, and of course he wants us to know as well, that Jesus has supreme, ultimate authority. But where is that from? The centurion has made the the link. It's from God alone. These two healing miracles show us that Jesus is, yes, God's son, the Messiah Christ we all need. The one that Matthew's readers have been so longing for and waiting for. I wonder about you. Do you believe that Jesus is that promised one who would establish the kingdom of God and take his people there through his life, death and resurrection? He has demonstrated that he has authority and power over all things. I wonder how we're going to respond. Let's go to uh, uh, the, the responses that we see. Second point, the response to Jesus now we'll look at this much more next week and we'll be brief here. Look at verse, uh, when we get to verse 18. But as we see two clear responses to Jesus, let's look at them here now. Certainly the leper and the centurion recognise the authority of Jesus. So the leper says, you can make me clean. What a response. Jesus, the centurion says, just say the words. See, both respond by seeing Jesus and they see his authority, that he can reverse the laws of nature. Both see, then put their trust or faith in Jesus. That's very clear in verse 10 as Jesus commends the faith of the centurion. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following, Truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Do you see the shock of the passage? The Roman centurion is what? He's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. His faith, uh, he has faith that is commended though by Jesus. The centurion actually becomes the model of, uh, of response to uh, the, the authority of Jesus. He's the model of faith in some ways. So much so that if you look at verse 11 and 12, he, he, uh, Jesus issues an encouragement but also then a warning to his listeners. Look at the encouragement in verse 11. It shows that many like the centurion, many people who are not Jewish born, who are Gentiles, like us. We will come and be part of the heavenly banquet pictured there. That is part of God's good eternal kingdom through faith in the authority of Jesus. But there's a warning too in verse 12. And it's sobering, isn't it? Look down at it. Because there will be those in Israel, God's people, who will fail to respond to Jesus And their destiny, look at it, it's hard to read, is where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now Matthew, in his gospel, uses that image again and again and again as Jesus proclaims it. And it depicts the eternal place where God is fully present, absolutely, but in his judgments. And fully absent in his love. The Bible sometimes calls that hell. I wonder how we respond to Jesus. 
Do we heed the warning of verse 12? Because you may have been privileged to have grown up you know, in this country with all the privileges that that brings, and you might have even grown up in a Christian home and you've been taken to church all your life. You may have all of those privileges. But have you responded to Jesus? How have you responded to Jesus? Verse 12 we see is a warning that even the most privileged, the children of Israel, many of them did not respond appropriately and submit to Jesus as king, recognising his authority and power over all things. Oh, the leper and the centurion. Uh, wonderful examples here. They both responded by submitting themselves to Jesus' authority and their faith was rewarded with restoration of themselves and of the centurion's loved one. Well, do you see what that points to? The healing, you see, is just a glimmer of the ultimate restoration available in the supreme authority of Jesus. And this is where we get to our final point uh, in that third healing of verse 14 to 17. And it really helps us, I think, because Jesus is the fulfillment of so much of prophecy. Let's go to our last point. Now, I promise you, I'm not going to turn to any mother-in-law jokes. I've got a really great privilege of a great mother-in-law, so I'm not going to turn to mother-in-law jokes here. But again, Jesus' authority is here for all of us to see. The fever comes very quickly under Jesus' control. His authority and power reverses the situation in a word again. The king restores the woman to good health. And how does she respond? Look at verse 15. How does she respond to Jesus and his power and authority? With gratitude. She waits on him. And do you see what's happening? Jesus brings this undeserved restoration as a gift of grace. She hasn't done anything to merit this. It's a gift of grace. And all she can offer in return and thanks is her devotion. Which is all any of us can offer, the king who has everything. But critical to this little section, I think, is the last verse. We're going to focus our time uh, as we finish on that. Look at, down at verse 17. And that little quote there from Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 4. Why don't we turn back there quickly? Uh, first one to get to Isaiah 53. Shout out the page number. Isaiah 53, 741. The suite's available even for that, I'm sure. Page 741, Isaiah chapter 53, one of the servant songs of Isaiah, which we've looked at a couple of years ago. Now Matthew is quoting here um, uh, Isaiah, and he's helping his readers understand the extent, but also the nature of Jesus' authority. You have to remember that this is prophesied 600 years before Jesus uh, came, but it is all coming to pass in and through him. That is, Jesus is the long-awaited servant Messiah King who would fulfill all that this uh, uh, chapter speaks of. But why quote verse 4 of Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53, again, was probably the best known of all the chapters of the Old Testament scriptures to the people of God. Matthew doesn't need to say where it's from. They know exactly, as soon as those words come, they know where it's from. They can quote chapter and verse. They also knew that it was regularly used as a passage where to, 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 to demonstrate that the Messiah would also be a substitute. 
who would die in our place, taking the punishment that our sins deserve. So why verse 4? In what way does Jesus take up the infirmities of the leper or the centurion servant or the fevered mother-in-law? Because he doesn't swap places with them, does he? At face value, of course, Jesus has taken up their infirmities. That is, he's dealt with their sickness. But what Isaiah said would happen in the ministry of the promised Messiah was now all happening in Jesus as his readers were, re- were, were, were reading this for the first time. He would carry their, our diseases. He would sort them out. I think uh, Matthew and his first readers would see beyond just verse 4. They'd know what is to come. They would see uh, Jesus' life and his death. And they would see that all of this chapter is being fulfilled in and through his life, death and resurrection. So if you look down at uh, Isaiah 53 verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that that we should desire him. They saw that. They'd walked with him. Isaiah 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected. They'd seen that. Verse 5, pierced for our transgressions. They'd seen that. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. They'd seen that. We could go on and on and on with every verse. They knew. They could see Jesus was everything and more that Isaiah 53 had promised. And so we have to ask the question, as as he's quoting this verse, what sort of Messiah is Jesus? He's one, yes, with ultimate authority, that can make the unclean clean, who reverses nature, if you like, a man who can control sickness at distance with just a word. But what sort of Messiah is he? Yes, one with great authority, but also one that would be rejected, that would be despised and tortured by men. We must never separate the authority and power of Jesus with his gruesome, torturous death. And Matthew is showing his readers right at the beginning of this gospel that Jesus, yes, he has God's authority, But he is willing to surrender that authority and be led like a lamb to a slaughter. I wonder how we respond to Jesus. We need to look at the extent of his authority. Look at what his authority can do. Uh, It can restore and reverse the judgment of physical pain and death. How? By Jesus taking on himself all the infirmities being afflicted so that we do not have to be. Jesus has ultimate authority. But for you, in his love, he's willing to pour it out and be crushed. As Isaiah 53.10 tells us. In his life, he's willing to be made a guilt offering so that yours doesn't have to be. Why did he bother? Isaiah 53, 6. Why don't you just cast your eyes down there. Page 742. Because it tells us that we've all strayed from God's way. We've all rebelled. And the Bible calls it sin. But the good news is that Jesus 
is willing, if we respond to him appropriately, to take all the justice, all the punishment that we deserve on himself. And in so doing, verse 10 shows us that God is satisfied with that. He is satisfied. I wonder how you're going to respond to Jesus this week. Are you going to look forward with gratitude to the banquet pictured in Matthew 8 verse 11? Or perhaps do you need to heed the warning of verse 12? Let me finish with this. Recognise Jesus' authority. Respond to Jesus appropriately. If you've never done it before, respond appropriately today. And lastly, have confidence that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that was crushed for your sin so that you don't have to be. Let's pray as we close.